Welcome nerds, now bracing for an entertainment incursion. Rolling Rockabilly Track Gearing you up with the latest in horror, video games, movies, and TV. Now researching cloning capabilities. Nerds, this will be your finest hour. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, on this week's podcast, we're breaking down the latest episode of The Mandalorian, and we're also reviewing the finale of The Last of Us. Plus, I'm reviewing Scream 6, and we're talking the highlights of AEW Dynamite. And if today's episode isn't enough for you, don't forget you can get even more Amazing Nerd Show content on Patreon by subscribing to our $5 tier. Doing so, you'll gain access to our Best and Worst of the Week show. Though if you'd like even more than that, additional bonus podcasts will be available for our $10 tier that includes all of the other tiers' benefits as well. That's right, Christian. Currently, we've got third-tier exclusives like The Nerdies, where we discuss the top performances in TV and film of 2022. And also this month, we started a brand new segment called Better Late Than Never Reviews, where we review the films and TV shows that we didn't get a chance to discuss when they were first released. You can find our Patreon link in our show notes or simply type in patreon.com slash amazingnerdshow. Again, we got to give a shout out to our show producers, Darth Dad and Jeremy, and also a quick shout out to our new patron john we appreciate all the support you give to the amazing nerd show all right before we move on make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform if you like what you hear leave a five-star review and if you dm us a screenshot we will not only read it on the show but we'll send you some amazing nerd show swag speaking of which we got a five-star review from alan mata stating that the show is great Thank you for the news and entertainment. Thank you for being a listener to The Amazing Nerd Show. Make sure to DM us uh, your info and we'll send you some nerd swag. But all right, with that said, let's get into the news. Every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters. We're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning, potential spoilers for upcoming shows and movies ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. All right, up first, Zack Snyder releases a tease that has some DC fans extremely excited. This past week, Zack Snyder surprised everyone with a very mysterious tweet featuring the voice of Darkseid. For those uninitiated and or living under a rock, Zack Snyder is the man who directed Man of Steel, Batman vs Superman, and was the original director for Justice League. This message from Darkseid simply stated to the fans to save the dates of April 28th through the 30th, which is only a little over a month away. Zack Snyder fans believe it could be a Snyder con centered around the Snyderverse. But I feel like if it's a con, they should have announced it, you know, maybe months prior but who's to say no one would come you know I, I feel like droves of people would come if they were to drop a poster for it next week after all we've seen nothing but rabid support over the past few years for the Snyderverse well Christian I don't have a calendar handy but are those dates like a weekend uh yes they would be yes the last weekend in April okay could it also be like maybe like a special limited like theatrical release for uh you know Snyder's Justice League oh, that's possible I didn't think about that I mean maybe it could be a film each day too Man of Steel Batman vs Superman then Justice League oh uh, yeah that could be possible too so um we'll see I mean I have seen some Snyder fans maybe getting their hopes up a little too high um so hopefully this 
doesn't result in any kind of like backlash because I definitely don't feel like this means like Snyder is going to be part of the DCU or anything. But speaking of the DCU, we got a huge update for the upcoming Superman Legacy film. Gun on Twitter announced his official position as director for the Superman Legacy film, which is set for a July 11th, 2025 release, which Gunn also shared was the birthday of his late father. Following that, Warner Brothers Discovery posted the first official synopsis being Superman Legacy tells the story of Superman's journey to reconcile his Kryptonian heritage with his human upbringing as Clark Kent of Smallville, Kansas. He is the embodiment of truth, justice, and the American way guided by human kindness in a world that sees kindness as old fashioned. As far as the synopsis, uh, you know, it sounds like it kind of falls in line with the idea that this is all going to be kind of inspired by Grant Morrison's all-star Superman uh, run in the comics. I will also say that I'm excited that Gunn has decided to, like, actually direct the film himself, um, especially since I believe it's the first, like, cinematic project uh, for Chapter 1, um, re release-wise at least. The way he's been talking about it, you could tell that it's definitely a passion project, especially since he's writing the script. So who better to entrust like the kickoff really of like the DCU than, you know, yourself, right? The guy who's, you know, guiding the ship. Exactly. But anyway, moving on to the MCU, we have a report on why Blade possibly was delayed. During the Hot Mike podcast, it would seem industry insider Jeff Snyder put some fuel to the flame of rumors that Mahershala Ali was requesting multiple script changes that we heard of last year for the upcoming Blade film. This on top of several other setbacks like the loss of its original director, Basim Tarek, who's now been replaced by Jan Demange of Lovecraft Country fame, were amongst many reasons why the film was originally pushed back. Hopefully though, things are more on schedule as the film is set for release September 6, 2024, and is set to be a part of the fifth phase of the MCU. So we heard rumors about like script issues a while back. Um, so honestly, like good for Ali, like if there's issues, I mean, you want the script to be a home run. Um, like there was something I remember like about there only being like one big action sequence in the entire mm. film. Uh, which is insane to think that a Blade film would have, like, that little action in it. So I'm all for him, like, advocating for the character and what's best for the film. I mean, all we really want is those old Blade films, but with, you know, actual depth. <laughs> How dare you blaspheme on this podcast, Christian? Bite your fucking tongue. Blade 1 and 2 are works of art, goddammit. I blasphemy on this show with quotation marks there uh, <laughs> quite often. <laughs> no, I agree 100%. Like, you've got to have a great story, but you also have to have some fucking awesome action sequences in the film. Because, I mean, I, I've watched Blade recently and, like, you know, it still holds up. So, I mean, that blood rave scene alone, like, I mean... People are going to be walking in the theater with some high expectations. So, I mean, you definitely need to deliver. Like at this point, like fans have seen it all. So, I mean, if you're dealing with a supernatural vampire hunter, come on, more blood raves, goddammit. But anyway, moving on, it looks like the Silver Surfer might be making his way to the MCU in a new series that might have already found its director. With Matt Shakeman on to helm the Fantastic Four film, it seems he may get another project in the rumored Silver Surfer series over on Disney+. The Hollywood Handle claims that Shakeman has signed a multi-project deal for Marvel Studios and will not only be working on the Silver Surfer, but several episodes of Vision Quest, which follows, you know, the version of Vision introduced in Shakeman's previous Disney Plus series, WandaVision. So if true, Marvel seems to be all in on Shakeman. 
Now, we originally heard that Silver Surfer might be getting a special that would act like as a like prologue to the Fantastic Four film. But now that doesn't sound like that's in the works anymore. So is that now off the table? I mean, at least by this rumor, they're saying that it's a series. There, it definitely sounds more like an episodic show. And it's going to than... take place after the Fantastic Four. Yeah, it definitely feels like it's after based on this rumor. I mean, you never know. There, we don't know the full like schedule right now, but... No, obviously. Yeah, but I mean, I think at the time when the original rumor came out, we were both kind of saying that like to do Silver Surfer justice needs to be a series at least um unless they were just like telling his like initial origin story um but i also worry that that the fantastic four film is going to end up being too jam-packed then like if you're also introducing a character like silver surfer into the fold you know especially in the first you know fantastic four film um not to say that they can't pull it off but i don't know i kind of want them to kind of just like focus on the fantastic four um, you know, and whoever the villain is. But I guess they could be telling the story backwards and we see the Silver Surfer as like, you know, Galactus's herald. And then, you know, we get his origin story in the series, um, which could work. I don't know. But I will say like one thing's for sure. Like if they're going to do a Silver Surfer show, they need to do it right and give it plenty of time and a, a huge budget. Because um, you're talking about a story that's going to take place like, you know, the majority of the time in space. So mm-hmm. I, I don't, I mean, you got to go big or go home with this series. I mean, we can't have any like CGI issues like we did with like She-Hulk. So like take your time and get it right. Also, while we're talking about uh, the Fantastic Four, it seems like Mason Gooding has stirred up some rumors that he might be possibly starring as the Human Torch in the upcoming film. Uh, he posted something on social media with him and a lighter out that says Flame On. Uh, and that, of course, made the internet go crazy. So um, I think he's a good fit for the character, honestly. I thought he was great in Scream, so I'm definitely not opposed to the casting. I mean, there's a good chance he was just, you know, lighting up a lighter and saying flame on, though. Maybe, maybe. These these actors know what they're doing, they're Christian. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Might as well throw your name in the hat, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I'm sure if he gets enough, like, support on social media, like, why wouldn't Kevin Faki, you know, take a look at him, you know, at, mm-hmm. you know, for the character, so. But speaking of Marvel rumors, uh, we did hear a while back that Sasha Baron Cohen would be possibly playing Mephisto in the upcoming Ironheart series. Well, now a story just came out as we're recording that he might actually be starring in his very own Disney Plus special. I personally think he's a great fit for uh, Mephisto. Um, and I could see like this Disney Plus special perhaps like dropping before Ironheart even comes out to kind of like introduce like the Marvel Universe to the character. Um, I feel like that would make the most sense since, I mean, there's so much backstory, obviously, and lore to dive mm-hmm. into um, that it might be, you know, smart to kind of like, you know, wet fans whistles instead of just, you know, dropping that character cold in their laps. Um, I don't know. I'm imagining like a musical number where it's just Mephisto fucking things up for our heroes throughout all the films that we've just not known. Like he's you know, <laughs> telling us how he caused this and this and this. I think that'd be perfect. Yes. <laughs> I mean, as long as we don't get like another 15 minute clip of Rogers the musical, uh, like we did with Hawkeye. 
That was Mephisto's doing. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe he's directing it. Is that yes. what's happening? <laughs> I mean, it I love Hawkeye, but that was a real disappointing after credits. Uh-huh. You know, after, a, you know, a great series. But anyway, on to the next story. Uh, it looks like Disney boss Bob Iger dropped some news nuggets at a conference recently. Iger, while speaking at a media and telecom conference, made mention of the future of the MCU and how we're set to see a whole lot of new in the upcoming years, along with a new set of Avengers. This is something we've already seen in the works after Endgame as we've been introduced to several new heroes like Shang-Chi, Kate Bishop, Moon Knight, and more. I'm sure by the release of Kang Dynasty, half of the Avengers team will be stacked with new heroes, introduced in, you know, the recent phases. On top of that, during the same conference, Iger mentioned he saw an official clip for the Acolyte confirming that the series will be coming out in 2024 to Disney+. Plus. So when it comes to the Avengers, I don't think it's going to be like an all-new team. Because that's what a lot yeah. of people were getting out of the story. I'm sure you're still going to have familiar faces like, you know, Hulk and Falcon, who's, you know, probably going to end up leading the team as, you know, the new Captain America, I would assume. Mm -hmm. um, who, who would you like to see part of the new Avengers team? And I don't know, like, maybe it's a case of them just, like, calling all the heroes who, like, team up in King Dynasty and Secret Wars Avengers, kind of like what they did with, um, you know, Infinity War and uh, yeah. Endgame. Because to me, like, just because a hero assists in saving the day with the Avengers doesn't mean they're actually, like, full-fledged Avengers members. Like, as far as new characters, I feel like Shang-Chi is definitely gonna be a new Avenger added to the team, especially after having that meeting with them at the end of his film. Um... I'm trying to think if any of the TV show characters will actually like be solidified like Avengers, you know, team members. Cause I could see them I could see them wanting to do Daredevil just based off of popularity. You know? Yeah, he's not a great fit though. I mean, mm -hmm. I could see him making the assist but not actually being a true member. I could see Kate Bishop, um, you know, and have like Hawkeye bring her into the fold. I could also see um, you know, Jennifer she-Hulk and, you know, you have Bruce bringing her onto the team. And it seems like I think Mark Ruffalo, like, let it slip that She-Hulk is going to be an Avenger. But who knows? He could just be talking out of his ass, too. So um, I could see Miss Marvel. I could just see, like, a lot of, like, the legacy characters that they just introduced joining the team. Um, and, and like, that doesn't mean just because they've joined the Avengers doesn't mean, like, they couldn't do a young Avengers team. Because that's in the comics, that's how we end up getting the champions exactly. like, you know, Miss Marvel and Miles and Nova are all part of the Avengers for a short period of time. And they become like disillusioned and start their own group. So um, I could definitely see something like that taking place. But when it comes to characters like Daredevil and Moon Knight, I feel like they'll be more like allies where we might see them on screen with the Avengers. Kind of like um, like we got with the Guardians. I mean, we have to assume that Captain Marvel is going to be a big part of the film. Uh, I, I do agree that Sam will still be the leader, though. I Because I, 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 I felt like at some point that they were might have been thinking about shifting to Carol as being the next like leader of the group. But, you know, I feel like it's definitely solidified that Sam would be the next, you know, big head figure of the Avengers. Yeah. And I mean, he has experience with the team also. Exactly. I mean, I know Carol was working with them during the events of uh, Endgame. For those four, four years but at the same time like sam has been on the team for a long time also i, I mean ant-man right 
Yeah, yes. I figure Ant-Man's probably going to be, you know, part of the team unless, you know, the rumor's true or the the uh, theory that he's in an alternate reality. Have you heard that one? <laughs> yes, I heard that one. <laughs> I just love when the internet, you know, comes up with their own theories to make films better than they really were. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> it is what it is, though. Um, do you think we could see uh, Shuri as the new Black panther like join the team i can see her in the film i can't imagine her as an actual avenger at the moment but anyway we could do this all night so let's move uh-huh. on all right lastly we got some horror news it looks like we have some casting rumors for guillermo del toro's frankenstein deadline brings word on guillermo del toro's frankenstein film for netflix as their sources claim mia goth of x and pearl fame along with oscar isaac of moon knight and andrew garfield of amazing spider-man fame are all in talks to be a part of this picture which is one hell of a cast if true del toro is on to write and direct this adaptation of mary shelley's frankenstein but there is no word on a projected release at this time you can say that again. That is one hell of a cast. Uh-huh. Um, I could totally see um, Oscar Isaac playing, like, you know, the monster. Um, and, like, Andrew Garfield being, you know, uh, Henry Frankenstein. Uh, I think that would be awesome casting if that is where they're going. I, for some reason, forgot about this project completely. I remember we heard rumors about it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But, so it looks like the gears have finally been set in motion, you know, for this. Um. I don't know. I'm super excited, though. Also, while I think about it, like, I could also see um, Doug Jones playing uh, the monster, uh, you know, since he's, you know, played plenty of monsters in the past for uh, Del Toro. Yeah, it'd be an easy fix, because all I'm imagining with Oscar Isaac would be, like, him on stilts, you know, because he's not the tallest guy. Yeah, but Christian, it's movie magic. I mean, they can make yeah, that I work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Boris Karloff was only 5'11", so... I mean, and that was in the 30s, fair Christian. Enough. Yes, fair <laughs> enough. All right, well, lastly, it looks like there's a Smile sequel in the works. The Hollywood Reporter has come out saying that Parker Finn of Smile fame is set to make a sequel and also made a multi-year first-look deal with Paramount Pictures. While this sequel is barely in development, Parker Finn has claimed it's their you know, highest priority. Christian, have you seen Smile? I still haven't seen it yet. So I definitely would check it out. I believe it's streaming on like Peacock or, you know, um, uh, Paramount, you know, one of those streaming services. Uh, I was surprised with how much I liked it. Um, you know, I was you know doing my homework for our end of the year uh, countdown. Uh, so I, I felt like I needed at least, you know, check it out. Uh, and I don't know, it, like it, it just struck a nerve with me because it reminded me so much of like an early 2000s like J-horror film. Um, so I don't know. I had a good time with it. So I'm excited that, you know, they're doing a sequel because I definitely feel like there's a lot of cool directions they could take the story in. And now for the nerds breakdown of the Mandalorian season three, episode three spoilers ahead. Did you bathe in the waters? I did. And have you removed your helmet since? No, I have not. Then you may join our covert and live as your ancestors once did. You may leave any time you wish. Until then, you are one of us. Welcome, Bo-Katan of Clan Crees. This is the way. This is the way. 
We return to the mines of Mandalore at the Living Waters, where Din Djarin awakes from being nearly drowned by his salvation. After again thanking Bo-Katan for rescuing him, he explains he didn't think the water would be that deep, only for Bo to explain that how you know the bombings created a seismic quake that clearly ruptured you know the chamber's floors. Bo was also surprised to find that Mando didn't really see the mythosaur, and she chooses not to tell him as they leave the chamber. First of all, it's like, I mean, thanks for the warning. Like, I mean, you couldn't give him a heads up. <laughs> like, you know, watch your step. Uh, also, I told you, man, like, you can't trust Bo. I feel like she's up to something. <laughs> she's definitely looking for an angle for, you know, a way back into, like, leadership of the Mandalorians. Uh, and I feel like she is going to use Mando uh, the best she can. I love that Din Djarin's not like super perceptive though. Like she asks him twice. Like if someone does a very specific question, like you didn't see anything yes. alive, you sure? Like why, like, why are you asking me? What did me? you see alive? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, like, yeah. <laughs> he's just happy. He's like rebaptized and he's yes. good to go. So do you think she's like planning to try to ride the mythosaur like herself? It feels like it, right? Like that would get her, you know, much more respect than maybe the dark saber would. I guess I don't know, but how would she go about pulling that off? Uh, I don't know, but I guess not telling Mando is the way to go at the moment. <laughs> so I guess the one issue with the the idea of Bo being up to like some shady shit, like, is you know, like mando just doesn't care like <laughs> she doesn't have to go to these lengths to like regain control of you know the mandalorians because it's not like he's actually looking to you know lead mandalore himself anyway no he's so, just a simple man trying to get around the galaxy exactly know? like he just wants to you know rejoin his cult like he's fine you know hanging out with grogu and you know doing cult shit i guess i mean he would probably absolutely help her do that it, it I, I think know. so. I think so. Like, I can see him getting Grogu maybe like uh, to put the whammy on, you know, the mythosaur. And then she can just, you know, climb on board and, you know, hey, you're the leader, right? It's just not the Mandalorian way. All right. I mean, I mean, that goes back to the theory that she might actually be scared of the curse, too. Like, you know, mm -hmm. by accepting the Darksaber the way she did, you know, without the combat element that she somehow like brought upon like Dark Days to her people um so i i could i could kind of see it i don't know i mean it is interesting that she never took her helmet off after getting out of the water like well, we'll get into it more later but it's just like she never once and she's been known to just be hanging out without it on wherever she goes so i don't know in space, Bo and Mando head back to his N1 fighter, but on approach to Bo-Katan's palace on Kalevala, they get ambushed by a battalion of TIE interceptors. The two devise a plan, though, to get Mando to his ship so that the, he can actually aid in the fight. On Kalevala, Mando, you know, makes a daring jump to his ship, and Bo and him go on a, you know, killing spree, dispatching all of these TIE interceptors. But when they think that they've destroyed all their attackers, over the hills, Bo witnesses just like how the Empire did to Mandalore, these Imperials drop bombs on her palace. Man, Favreau and crew, like, they're not taking it easy on this character whatsoever. <laughs> she just loses everything. Uh -huh. um, like, where is she supposed to sit around and brood now, Exactly. Right? Like, her whole uh <laughs> disc collection of Depeche Mode all gone. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, it is fucked up that she, you know, has to re-live like live this experience all over again by watching another place get bombed. 
Angered by their actions and the stern reminder of what happened to her homeworld, Bo attempts to go after them. But as she does so, Mando sees that there's even more ties inbound to attack and begs Bo to follow. She resists at first, but eventually comes to reason. Mando claims he has the perfect place to go where the Imperial warlords won't find them. Now, I know she's blaming this attack on like Imperial warlords, but I feel like there's just too big of a coincidence that they were just on Mandalore and all of a sudden, you know, the remnants of the Empire are attacking them. So I'm guessing all that somehow connected. I mean, it definitely feels more personal when you go and blow up someone's house. Yeah, <laughs> directly. <laughs> After our title screen, we return to Coruscant, but even more specifically, the Opera House where Palpatine taught us the tale of Darth Plagueis the Wise. Here at the Opera House, we follow one of Gideon's former officers into the showroom floor to find Dr. Pershing here giving a speech on his crimes under the Empire and what his research in cloning was to accomplish. Apparently, Pershing has been granted amnesty as part of a new Republic program designed to you know undo the the brainwashing techniques of the Empire and give these former Imperials a second chance. So while I'm not a prequels guy, it was cool. Like the amount of time we actually got to spend on Coruscant this uh, uh, episode, I do feel like there's a lot of like foreshadowing in uh, Pershing's speech uh, when he's talking about like splicing DNA and everything. Um, I mean, this whole fucking episode is just foreshadowing for things uh -huh. to come. Uh, I just I just have a feeling we're going to get like a Snoke origin story eventually, because I don't know what other possible direction they could be taking this. You know, I was story. very excited to see what Coruscant's like, you know, under Republic control. And I thought that was pretty interesting to explore in this episode. But especially when they leave the opera house here and he's, you know, just getting, you know, bombarded with, you know, thanks and congratulations from people that clearly had nothing to do with, you know, the Republic side of the war. You know, they're all like pretty much assholes that don't care who's in charge. Speaking of the Republic, like how fucked up is it that they refer to the people who are part of this like amnesty program, um, former like Imperials as like numbers, like, isn't that weird? It is. It actually odd. reminds me a lot of how, like, um, Rampart on the Bad Batch right now is, like, refusing to use, like, the clones' nicknames and, and only uses their assigned, like, numbers. I know in the sequels, they treat the Stormtroopers as, like, you know, specific numbers as well. But I don't remember if during the original trilogy, if they called, like, each person just by a number. Yeah, but, like, that's the Imperials. Like, you would think that the Republic would be above that, yeah. right? No, I agree with you there. I was just, I guess a part of me is wondering if they were, if the thinking was like, hey, some of these guys don't have names, so they don't have to go by their names. But it's, it's, it's all dumb in the end. Like they should just be allowed to have, if they have a name, just use their name. I don't know why the Republic would be against oh, that. Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying like if they were a stormtrooper um, mm -hmm. in the past. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'd be interested to see, like, the thinking behind it, you know, if they actually explore that. But it does feel a little inhumane to be, you know, calling people by numbers instead of their actual, like, birth names. So, I don't know. Pershing then heads to Amnesty Housing that keeps all those who's been granted Amnesty after the Empire. There, he's welcomed by his fellow former Imperials that offer him a drink. Again, we meet back up, though, with G-68, who we were following into the Opera House earlier. 
to witness Pershing's speech. She too worked on Gideon's ship along with Pershing as you know he quickly recognizes and points out their connection. The others you know that are at the table seem surprised to have you know two that worked with Gideon among them as they talk about you know if Gideon escaped or if he had his mind erased by formal imperial tech called the Mind Flayer. So like right away this all felt very staged like they're almost like waiting for him. I don't know if you got mm. that feeling. Um, but I, I just, I don't know. I smelt collusion. Like it was like, <laughs> <laughs> something was up here. I just thought they were real bros being bros. I, I didn't sure. see that. Sure, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> I thought her being at that table was very like, you know, I'm here on purpose. Ex- but exactly. Exactly. G68 at this time offers to show Pershing around uh, Coruscant since he's new here. The group also tries to talk about, you know, their past, you know, things that they've missed from their Imperial days, which is a bit of a tough topic for Pershing to talk about. Eventually, he relents in remembering his love for Imperial travel biscuits, which a couple of the guys agree were good, but claim you can't get them here on Coruscant. But actually, later that night, Pershing gets a knock on the door, but no one answers. Instead, there's simply a box of his favorite travel biscuits laying there before him. Yeah, and it was right here where I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely some kind of like sleeper cell or something. Now, I have no idea where they would be like getting rations from like, you know, imperial rations. But, you know, it is what it is. The next day we get to see Pershing at work at his archival data job where uh, a fellow employee remarks that, you know, he saw his speech from the other day prior and is confused why they have him working such a low level position after being a big scientist for the Empire. But Pershing keeps his head down, claiming he's happy to help where needed so this whole like space office scene remind me a lot of where we see uh karn end up in uh andor Mm, yes i mean you just had a feeling like you know this new life wasn't going to be enough for pershing uh, in the long run. After this, he goes out onto the town with G68, taking in the sights of Coruscant. Here, G68 drives the conversation towards Pershing's cloning as she wants him to continue his research in order to help the Republic. However, Pershing laments, you know, that the New Republic finds cloning unethical. G68 believes it's important to help the New Republic in any way he can, and pretty much makes it seem like it's a waste of his talents if he were not to try. This comes off, you know, extremely manipulative as even afterwards, G-68 goads him into doing something he doesn't want to by touching a piece of the mountaintop, which a droid gets in his way before he can actually touch this artifact placed here on Coruscant. Some definite heavy-handed foreshadowing here. Uh (laughs) But like I said, I really enjoyed, like, getting the scenic tour of Coruscant, Um, especially like the weird, like glowing space popsicles that they have. But yeah, at this point, you definitely know she's trying to set him up for something. Back at the Amnesty housing, Pershing gets interviewed by a droid about his stay, you know, so far inside the program. After what feels like, you know, an android test from Blade Runner, Pershing asks, you know, the droid if he would be allowed to do his research in some capacity. But the droid tells him his studies would not be allowed. Yeah, I mean, this lab scene is straight out of Blade Runner. Um, Even the score, like, during this episode feels very Blade Runner to me. Mm -hmm. My thing is, though, like, are these more like therapy droids or something? Because they don't detect any issues with, like, the way Pershing is uh, answering any of these questions. So they're not great lie detectors if that's what, you know. (laughs) Because he's giving clear signs. Yeah, because that can't be their purpose. 
after learning this, Pershing, you know, turns to G68, claiming he would need, you know, certain things like a mobile lab station in order to get working again on his cloning, which, you know, G68 is quick to tell him that she could find these items for him. But Pershing is still hesitant about doing something he knows could ruin his amnesty. At work the next day, Pershing comes across Imperial Technology archives that are being destroyed. When bringing this up to his fellow employees that they could you know, be used to this tech, they shoot him down saying even if they were to request it, the higher ups probably wouldn't take it too seriously because you know it's someone from the Amnesty program asking for it. In his later you know, droid checkup, he seems to be contemplating getting back into his research and asks more of an ethics question of the droid instead of just asking if it's okay. Here he asks, if it's more important to help the Republic than you know anything else, which the droid agrees, not knowing you know Pershing's asking about doing his research for the right reason. Because yeah, I mean, here's the thing with Pershing: like even when we first meet up with the character in the first season, he always felt like he was reluctant to you know be working for the Empire. He seemed more interested just about the science of it all. Um, like that's his true passion, mm -hmm. um, you know, and he just kind of like fell into like maybe like the wrong crowd because I believe I remember like him not wanting to like, you know, bring any harm to Grogu. Yeah, he was fairly kind in all his interactions with Grogu. Okay. Yeah. So, but scientists need a science, right? Like, <laughs> um, and personally definitely has like all the makings of, you know, a potential like mad scientist at the end of the day where like no matter how unethical he's going to rationalize his experiments no matter what. Pershing then takes up, you know, G68's offer to find him a mobile lab station. In doing so, the two embark on a mission taking them outside the parameters they are allowed to stay in on this city planet to find an Imperial shipyard. They sneak onto a train and do their best to avoid, you know, attention, but when the ticket droid comes around, they try dodging it by going, you know, from train car to train car. Eventually, they run out of cars to escape into, in which G68 forces Pershing to jump when near their, you know, drop-off location. Here we find out that they're going into a decommissioned Star Destroyer set to be scrapped for parts. G-68 promises that the ship won't be guarded as they make their way into it. Inside the two go to the labs in which Pershing is able to find exactly what he needs for his cloning research. However, there is a sound approaching the two on the ship. Realizing they may not actually be alone, the two attempt to escape, but once outside the ship with the mobile lab case, G-68 turns out to be working alongside the New Republic and turns Pershing in for going against the amnesty program. So I definitely didn't see this coming, and I did start to question why she would have to go to this lengths to, like, you know, set him up and prove that he's not truly reformed. But I guess we possibly see some of those questions get answered with the next scene. The now apprehended Dr. Pershing lays on the table of a mind flayer that, you know, the New Republic have repurposed to have those who, you know, have been subjugated to the Empire's brainwashing, you know, deprogrammed here. It turns out G-68 works as an enforcer for the Amnesty program and wrote in her report how Pershing was falling back into his old Imperial ways. Pershing begins to realize that he's been set up as he pleads for them not to use the mind flayer on him. At the end of the day, it was G-68 goading him all along to do his research this whole time. Even so, they forcefully use the mind flayer on him, which at a low dosage doesn't do much harm. But after everyone leaves the room, G-68 turns it up to 11 and proceeds to wipe the doctor's mind. So I don't know about you, but what I got out of this moment that was that she's like a double agent and that she's actually still working for the remnants 
and she wanted to make sure that Pershing wouldn't talk and, you know, wipe his mind completely. Um, but I don't know. What did you think of this? Movie? I mean, I agree. I think that she's, you know, definitely working for someone outside of, you know, the Republic. And But I don't know if her mission was like to either to get Pershing to do something for them and they just got caught and found out or um, if she was using him to like get medical supplies or something. Yeah, I agree because it does feel a little weird that she needed to get him on the ship to prove mm-hmm. that, you know. He's not completely 100% with, you know, the Republic at this point, because it feels like she has enough evidence before that. Right. Um, But at the same time, it's like all she really needs is is like a list from him. Right. Like she doesn't really need him there. So I don't know. It just feels kind of murky, a little too like contrived for me. Uh, So I'm hoping that we get like a further like explanation. Am I right in thinking that now that he's mind wiped, like he'd be useless to like the Imperials, right? Exactly. Uh, there's no use for him at this point unless Cause that, it's somewhere in the back of his mind. Because I would assume that <laughs> that would just wipe like all of his like, you know, exactly. working knowledge on cloning away. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. But if that was truly like her end game, wouldn't it have just been easier to like, you know, push him off the train when they're, you know, jumping from car <laughs> to car? <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, I, don't, I don't know what their overall goal was here. It doesn't make full sense, but it's. You know, it, maybe just suspense for the show. I guess. It was a lot of Pershing, though. It was a lot ah. of Pershing. <laughs> I was not expecting to get, like, a full episode of Pershing. I didn't no, hate not at it. All. Uh, I know a lot of people were kind of, like, shitting on, like, how much time we spend with the character. And then some people were trying to, like, throw shade by, like, comparing it to Andor. I was like, Andor was fantastic. Go fuck yourselves. Ah. Um, the one thing I will say is I'm glad that, you know, this story took place in, like, the longest episode of The Mandalorian yet. So, because this was a good hour long. And at least, like, this story was bookend with, like, Dinger and crew. So, I'm just hoping we're not in this situation where, like, by episode eight, we're wondering why they wasted so much time with Pershing as they're, like, running out of episodes to tell their story. They got plenty of time, Damon. I mean, we still got to get two episodes Christian of at least you. Boba Fett in this <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, right. So... <laughs> I'm sure we'll get a whole, like, uh, Bo-Katan, like, uh, flashback, you know, episode, right? (laughs) Which I actually wouldn't mind, but, you know, that's just me. Well, you're also forgetting about the uh, Ahsoka pilot episode that I'm Uh, sure they're going to shoehorn in here. (laughs) Just when you think the episode has come to a close, we return to Mando as him and Bo arrive at the Children of the Watch's hideout, where Paz Vizsla stands before them, calling them apostates and unwelcomed by the clan. However, Mando claims he's been to the living waters and is redeemed with proof of the water with him. This is put to the test by the armor who takes Din water sample and is pleased to see he speaks the truth. By creed, he has been redeemed, and this too goes for Bo-Katan as she entered the waters to save him, along with never removing her helmet afterwards. This surprises Bo, but the armorer welcomes her to the clan whether Bo wants it or not. Yeah, and I think there's a little implied foreshadowing here too, uh, because you get the shot of the mythosaur uh, symbol on the wall also. Now, a lot of fans were upset because they took this as Bo like joining the Children of the Watch. Um, I don't know about you, but I didn't really see it that way. Um, I think she's just kind of like going along for the ride right now, and she's going to probably use them for, you know, whatever she has up her sleeve. Um, Because like, once again, the fact that she didn't mention the mythosaur that she sees in, you know, the waters 
just tells you everything you need to know. Like, she's definitely plotting something here. I mean, she literally doesn't have a home right now, so why not stay with the people <laughs> you, that are yeah, giving you, you a like, bed? Hey, it's a place to stay, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I'll hang out in your cave for a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, my guess is she's going to try to, like, you know, rally the children of the watch to do her like bidding for her because you also have to figure like now that they know that like mandalore is habitable like they would all want to try to return especially knowing that they can find the living waters like i still don't see Bo as a villainous character i just think she's more than anything desperate at this point and she's willing to do whatever it takes to regain leadership of her people and you know bring back their society you know by, like reuniting them. I mean, her character is night and day from where we saw her in the second season. You know, you know, she had people behind her back, and she felt more confident as a character. Now we're seeing her needing to rely on probably Mando to make any moves in the future. Now, well, it should be interesting to see how it all plays out at the end. But with that said, make sure to catch us next week as we break down episode four of The Mandalorian. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. This is a public service announcement. Manscaped now has beer products and is going even further with their brand new Weed Whacker 2.0. Go ahead and tell the world the leaders in below the waist grooming are traveling north of your South Pole with their revolutionary grooming products. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 and their new beard line confirms they have all the best tools for your hygiene toolbox. Time for you to upgrade your game by going to manscaped.com and using our code 20NERDSHO for 20% off plus free shipping. Listeners know that there's no one I trust more with my nutsack than Manscaped. So why not trust them with my beard also? So allow me to introduce you to the Beard Hedger Pro Kit. It's the ultimate package that makes it easier than ever to craft your signature look. It all starts with the cordless electric beard hedger. The beard hedger is tough on hair, but smooth on your face, leading to single stroke efficiency that brings satisfaction one stroke at a time, just like your mother. <laughs> this waterproof cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths, all with one guard, so no more messy drawers full of extra add-ons. The Pro Kit also comes with four dermatologist tested formulations for your post-trim care. This includes Manscaped's beard shampoo and conditioner, beard oil, and beard balm to moisturize, style, and shimmer your new beard. Plus, the kit has three gifts, a beard brush, a comb, and scissors. So with a nice beard, your face is perfectly groomed, right? Wrong! You need to keep an eye out for those tough-to-trim ear and nose hairs. The brand new Weed Whacker 2.0 offers improved blades and skin-safe technology with virtually no tugging. It's never been so painless to mind your manhole. Now that you have your face looking great, you must try Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0 for the full body grooming experience. Good news though, the Performance Package 4.0 now comes with the Weed Whacker 2.0 and all the other below the waist grooming products Manscaped is known for. Your significant other will be delighted to see you covering all bases, if you know what I mean. So listeners, get 20% off and free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and make sure to use our code 20NerdShow. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. And now for the Nerds review of Scream 6. Mild spoilers ahead. And now, our feature presentation. What is this place? A shrine. Did you miss me? 
coming after us. Maybe he gets to win this time. We've got to lure him in. And we execute him. The survivors of the Ghostface killings leave Woodsboro behind and start a fresh chapter in New York City. Scream 6 is directed by Matt Bentinelli O'Pin and Tyler Gillette and stars Courtney Cox, Melissa Barrera, and Jenna Ortega. For those who are newer to the show, I'm not the biggest Scream fan, but I will say I mildly enjoyed the last installment, so I was interested to see where things went next. And what we got was probably the most fun I've had watching a Scream film since its inception. Entering a new domain, Ghostface takes on New York as Jenna Ortega's character, Tara, goes to college with a couple of her other fellow survivors. Of course, daughter of Billy Loomis, Sam, as played by Melissa Barrera, follows her sister to New York to have a fresh start and, of course, watch over her sister. Which, thank God she did, because Stab movie fans are everywhere. In this, we find out that there's been some online discourse about what happened in Scream 5, and that has all turned the public against Sam, with people thinking she killed her boyfriend, you know, being the daughter of a serial killer, which I thought was a cool element that they added to this. Of course, they do end up fighting off with a bigger, battered ghost face, who actually felt more formidable this time around, but the trauma that the, you know, Carpenter sisters have faced has also made them a little bit harder here, as they're more prepared for a battle with Ghostface. So you get this you know, great back and forth between our hunter and hunted. The movie doesn't stray from its silly victims though, like the like any slasher, but but the ongoing narrative that you know no one is safe in this made for some pretty suspenseful scenes, as they did a great job of showing even the main characters in consistent peril. One of the performances I wasn't a fan of in you know the last Scream film was Melissa Barrera playing Sam. I don't know if it was just bad writing for her character, but she was you know far from compelling outside of her you know, connection to Billy Loomis. But this time around, she quickly became one of my favorite characters in the film as she wrestles with her identity and trauma of facing, you know, her killer boyfriend. And by the film's end, she becomes a straight badass on par with, with the ghost face that's hunting her down. It was a breakout role, if you ask me. Jenna Ortega is also, of course, featured heavily in this film and played a perfect counterpart to Sam. Their relationship overall is one of the main driving forces in this film, and they're both handling the trauma of the events in the last film very differently, so it definitely puts them at odds more. And luckily, this was given enough time while also not bogging down the film and making it something that, you know, a slasher really isn't. Also, I have to say the continued use of legacy characters wasn't obnoxious, you know, which was a concern. You know, in Pantera, returning as Kirby was a fun and welcome addition that made sense and added to the film's end rather than being a forced return. And I gotta say, even Gail Weathers didn't bother me this time around, but overall, I think this was genuinely just a better script compared to the first requel. They also had some pretty decent pacing that gave all the characters enough time. Only criticisms, which this might be a bigger spoiler here, but I, I feel like there's not enough actual victims. You know, a lot of people get hurt, but not a lot of people actually die. And at the same time, the main villain is pretty easy to figure out. I feel like they haven't really figured out a great way of hiding who the true killer is and creating enough mystery behind you know, motives. But at the end of the day, I do think that this was the right direction and for this film. as a whole. Because now I actually want to see much more of this series. So I will be giving Scream 6 an A-. And I do look forward to a third installment, hopefully by the same directors. And now for the nerds review of The Last of Us Season 1. Spoilers ahead. Went to pull the trigger, I, I flinched. Still don't know why. 
Anyway, the reason I'm telling you all this is... I know why you're telling me all this. Yeah, I reckon you do. So time heals all wounds, I guess? It wasn't time that did it. Man, what an explosive finale. Uh, I definitely was not prepared for the shit hitting the fan the way that it did. Uh, but anyway, we open with a flashback to the day Ellie was born. Uh, she's, of course, born into tragedy because, I mean, that's what this show is. Uh, as, you know, we see her mother um, getting bitten while giving birth to her. Um, you know, giving Ellie a very blade-like origin story to why she's immune to infection, which I, of course, dug. Um, we also learned, uh, I believe, unless I missed it earlier, that Marlene was close to her mom, so much so that she actually entrusts Ellie's well-being with her. Um, not that, you know, she really had any choice in the matter, though. Yeah, this is an addition that I didn't really see coming. It's a moment that is kind of alluded to rather than like, you know, actually shown like, you know, Ellie reads a letter from her mother in the game, uh, but we never actually, you know, see her in any capacity. So this was a great moment to have and also helps uh, give Marlene another moment. I felt like she's barely been in the show, which I mean, she isn't you know, super prevalent in the game, but I was surprised they didn't do more with their character with how much, you know, additions that they were doing throughout this series in general. But maybe it's more just a time constraint than anything with the episode count. We then flash forward with Joel and Ellie nearing their final destination. Um, Ellie's aloof, still processing, of course, the trauma of the events of last episode, and most likely just the gravity of the situation, you know, since they're so close to finally completing their mission. Uh, it was really interesting uh, to me watching this kind of like role reversal of sorts happen between Joel and Ellie because Joel is doing all the talking here. I mean, part of it is like his new level of comfort and his willingness to let his guard down since, you know, their relationship has grown so much over the past, you know, how many months. Uh, and then I think also part of it is him trying to comfort her after everything she's just gone through. We actually witness more of this later on when Joel opens up and tells the truth about his scar and how, like, as time has gone on, he's actually found new purpose in life, uh, which, of course, is Ellie. It was a real heartbreaking story, but at the same time, it was also Joel's way of expressing how he feels about Ellie and that, you know, they'll get through this together. I personally really enjoyed this scene, but I have seen a lot of uh, discourse back and forth because this is another addition um, that they added. You know, he never actually said this story um, to Ellie, but I thought it was a great moment, especially with how much limited time they had to kind of that bond that they have now and how much Ellie has changed his life. I really thought it was a well done moment. Also during all this, Joel tells Ellie that we don't have to complete this mission. We can just turn around now and go back home. To which Ellie replies by telling him exactly how important it is for her to see this through. 
After all this, we get a beautiful scene where we get to witness a few moments of pure happiness for Joel and Ellie as the duo runs across a group of giraffe. Um, Ellie's childlike wonders just serves as a reminder that, you know, regardless of all the hell that she's been through, she's still a kid. And then, of course, they're ambushed and all hell breaks loose because, you know, that's the show, right? Exactly. There can never be a truly happy moment, right? Um, I also thought it was I also thought it was cool that they used real giraffes. Um, you know, for a moment while I was watching, I was like, oh, that really looks like CGI. But but we do actually know that they used real a real giraffe for that scene. But after all this, Joel actually wakes up in the hospital that they were searching for and discovers that it was the fireflies that attacked them. Uh, Marlene shows up and explains the procedure that needs to be done to find the cure and also lets Joel know that Ellie won't survive it. You can see the pain on Marlene's face and that, you know, she's not taking this decision lightly knowing what we know after the opening sequence. But Joel isn't having any of it and goes on a murderous rampage, almost killing everyone in the hospital to, sell, to save Ellie before the surgery. I know a lot of people have been debating this choice online, and I'm sure, you know, since the game originally came out, right? Um, to me, it's not about right or wrong. Love isn't rational, especially when it comes to being a parent. I mean, your DNA literally changes once you have a kid and your sole purpose becomes to protect your child. And that's that. Um, if you think for a second, I wouldn't do the same thing for my daughter out of your fucking mind. I mean, <laughs> this sounds horrible, but like I yelled at the screen when he let the nurses live because I mean, they could have called for help or reinforcements. Um, and I'm not alone. Like, I think most parents would burn the world down for their children. And that's just the truth. Um, anyway, Ellie awakens in the car. When she asks what happens, Joel lies his ass off. Um, you know, saying that the Fireflies had enough candidates to choose from and that they weren't successful in finding the cure. Ellie right away knows something's up and, you know, asks where her clothes are. Uh, Joel comes up with this story about the facility being raided, but once again, she knows that's bullshit. Um, the show closes with Ellie making Joel swear to her that everything he said about the Fireflies was true. Uh, which he does, and Ellie simply replies, okay. I mean, once again, she knows he's lying, but she's just choosing to accept it. I would have to guess this is all going to lead to her just resenting him later on down the line, though. I mean, you have to know that it's going to come up eventually. But either way, I was extremely happy that they, you know, stuck to the ending as, you know, closely as they possibly could i mean that was literally like shot for shot the last two minutes of the show is just exactly how the game played it out and i think there was probably no better way of doing that but how i felt during the actual you know fight sequence um, i thought it was really well shot and i really like i loved how the music built up and everything during that moment and how um you know it was kind of silent and you really you know got to feel joel walking through it but at the same time i can't help but compare it to you know what i was experiencing in the game which there's so much weight to that decision and so much weight to all of Joel's actions following that and just how much of a bloodbath that is caused by Joel 
running through this hospital and just wiping out all the fireflies to actually save Ellie in this moment that I didn't feel like the show necessarily lived up to that for me you know i just i feel like i would have preferred the whole episode to be a little bit longer like i would have had that moment stretched out i would have had more of the impact of what he's doing you know um and it could have still played out the same way but it would have been a much longer sequence for me at least you know having it start off maybe noisier and having him you know blasting through and then slowly becoming quieter as the realization of how many people have to die and almost how many people people in the world will most likely die because of this decision made by Joel. I guess in a way I was expecting this maybe to be a little bit more like Joel's moment of the show, similar to what we got to last week with Ellie, you know, her interactions with the cannibal leader. You know, it just felt too quick, too fast for me in the end. The entire moment just needed a little bit more time to settle, in my opinion. In the end, though, I was still happy with the episode overall, and I really loved Bella's performance there at the last few moments, you know, really showing her distrust for what Joel is saying. I agree with you, Damon. I mean, it's clear that she does not believe him, but she's choosing to just to make the moment maybe a little bit easier and maybe giving her a little bit more to like go forward, knowing that she's leaving, you know, what she believed was her purpose behind. This was a hell of an episode, and even with its shorter runtime, it never felt rushed. They told the story that they needed to tell, and it's definitely a decisive one, um, but that shouldn't surprise anyone because you know, that's the world that this show exists in. It's all about shades of gray. Tom Cruise in the story isn't going to come and save the day. There's nothing Hollywood about The Last of Us, really. Um, people are just trying to survive the best they can, and that's that. Um, and I think that's what I admire the most about you know, this show. It's a more realistic portrait on what it would look like to live in a post-apocalyptic society and what it would do to people. So I'm going to go ahead and give The Last of Us an A. The show is just so well-crafted and, you know, just filled with extraordinary performances. I mean, what's not to love? I mean, <laughs> hey, if you like to feel miserable for an hour, this is absolutely the show for you. Uh, but with all those lows come even bigger highs. And, you know, watching Joel and Ellie find each other and, you know, purpose in this hopeless world has been nothing but heartwarming, uh, even with the dark nature of the story. I guess if I had any real critique of this season, it would be maybe we could have used some more clicker action and maybe a little more of like Joel and Ellie's journey. But honestly, the storytelling has been so tight, you know, and they don't really like waste a moment of screen time. Like everything has purpose. So I think at the end of the day, I probably wouldn't change anything. And there's definitely not many series I can say that about. Yeah, it absolutely blew past my expectations for a decent adaptation, you know, of one of the best stories in gaming over the last 10 years. Of course, I'll always heavily compare everything to the game as I have these reviews week after week, but I have to commend them for what it accomplished on its own. You know, every added element, every bit of depth enhanced an already great story. For what we got, you know, I believe they went above and beyond to put out something that could captivate more than you know the gaming community and i believe they have you know really succeeded in that i will say i would 
I will say I do agree. I would have liked a little bit more time with the clickers. I just think with maybe the episode limit, maybe they were playing it a little bit safe with their investment because, you know, it's a video game adaptation and a lot of those haven't been received very well. It would have really helped to further the bond between Ellie and Joel if there had been maybe one or two episodes with them dealing with the real danger of the clickers because a big aspect of the game is, you know, the fact that they're taking care of each other. You know, we see this evolution of Joel, you know, doing what he can to help out Ellie, that's then seeing her kind of learn from those skills and then turn around and help Joel throughout the um, like later half of the game. Seeing them protect one another so much in the game was just what I believe endeared people to their you know bond, especially as you yourself are in that role as Joel and I mean, watching Ellie become this adept you know killer here. And these I mean these elements are in the show during some key story moments, but I wouldn't have you know minded just an extra episode to get us through all of that. You know, in a similar fashion to what we got with those earlier ones with Tessa. But really, I have no complaints beyond that. I really think that Bella Ramsey did a fantastic job in this role. I feel like they really owned it. And of course, Pedro Pascal was just the perfect casting for Joel. I can't. So for me, I'm going to be giving the first season of The Last of Us an A minus. And I'm excited to see where we go from here. Um, we did get a new story this past week about the future of The Last of Us. As Mazin and um, Druckmann you know, talked with GQ Magazine about kind of stretching out the next game um, across multiple seasons, uh, it is a massive story, so there is a lot to work with there. You have a ton, and especially with how they handled this first season, you have a ton of side characters that have probably great intricate backstories that you can explore further in. Um, but they will most likely, you know, stretch out, maybe even add elements to the front end of the uh, second game as we get introduced to an even more heartbreaking story. But all right, we would love to know what your thoughts on The Last of Us Season 1 were, and if you have any big hopes for the second season. Make sure to check us out at Amazing Nerd Show on social media. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. This past week in gaming, we got you know further rumors on the PS5 Slim and Pro versions that are said to be in the works. Insider Gaming claims that the consoles are set for a late 2024 release, which would be you know releasing four years after the original, just about you know half the console's expected lifespan. So it makes sense from you know usual console release trends that it would be coming out next year. What a Pro and Slim you know variety of the PS5 line may add is still up in the air, but perhaps you'll be playing Naughty Dog's next big game on these new consoles as Neil Druckmann confirmed the team is hard at work on their next big game and again made sure to let fans know it's most likely not going to be The Last of Us Part 3 at this time. Though Druckmann has made statements that the team has been you know restructured to work on multiple games at one time especially right now with them working on a Last of Us multiplayer game as well. There have been rumors on what Naughty Dog's you know next title may be as some fans you know of The Last of Us believe in the remake release of The Last of Us Part 1, they spotted a fantasy game that could be Naughty Dog's hint at their next new IP. Which studios have been known to leave little clues towards what they're working on next in games before. It'd be very cool to see what, you know, Naughty Dog would do with a fantasy-like world though. Uh, I'd be very curious to see what kind of game that would be. Either way, we know that they tell amazing stories every time, so I'm definitely excited to see whatever Naughty Dog has in store for, you know, the PlayStation. 
Also, before my internet went out, I got a chance to try out the Resident Evil 4 demo and stream it for you guys. And, you know, personally, I loved it. I have so much nostalgia for that opening of the original game that getting to play this new version just sent me right back to where I was the first time I got stuck there, you know, dying again and again, terrified of the villagers. The Resident Evil engine just continues to impress me. Everything always looks so beautiful, but yet all the changes to the gameplay still feel true to the original form of the game while still upgrading it in a way that makes it more fun to play. It's their attention to detail and gameplay that really makes these remakes worth playing. You know, it feels like a genuine upgrade without losing any of the charm of its predecessor. This is just really how every company that's considering doing remakes should do them. You know, this, this is what I hope really comes for the Silent Hill franchise, but we'll look into that more when they release more information. For now, I'm just extremely excited to hop back in to Resident Evil 4 again, and we'll be definitely streaming that live the weekend it comes out. Hopefully, you know, if, if anything comes up financially and I just can't, you know, pay for it then, then we'll do it the next weekend. But I'm going to be playing that as soon as possible. Um, right now, we're also playing on stream, you know, Dead Space, the, uh, that remake, plus, um, we're continuing on with Horizon Forbidden West, and there's a lot more coming out this year that I know I'm gonna to wanna to try out. So definitely you're gonna to wanna to stop by our Twitch channel to catch us live every single weekend where we play the latest games, plus old games that we had a lot of fun with in our past. Make sure to leave a follow today and stop by and say hi when we're live. But all right, now on to some wrestling. All right, Christian, so this week you had some serious technical issues since you lost uh, internet pretty much for the entire week. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I, I got to ca catch up on everything today. It was insane. Yeah, but because of that, we are running short on time. So we're going to go ahead and just give our overall thoughts on this past week's Dynamite. Um, I thought it was a fantastic show, um, bookend by two great angles. Um, you know, this was Tony Khan at his best, like, you know, finally like paying off some like long-term like storytelling. Um, but yeah, like starting off the show with the four pillars, um, I thought everyone really got a chance to shine here. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved everything we got beforehand with Max and his rebar mitzvah. <laughs> but then like one by one, we see him get interrupted by each of the other pillars, Jungle Boy, um, Darby Allen, and Sammy Guevara. Um, you know, I, I figured that he would be facing off against either Darby or Jungle Boy rather soon. I didn't think Sammy would be in the cards because of, you know, him being involved with JAS. Um, mm. So I don't know. I was happy, though, to see him part of this angle um, because I thought he really shined. And I think he, you know, kind of got back on track here as a character. I was actually kind of like taken aback, like how over he was with the crowd at first, like to the point where I felt like he had to throw in a heel line at the end of his promo to like <laughs> get them to boo him again. Right. Uh -huh. um, but they all get in the ring. They, you know, mentioned that they all want a title shot um, and they all cut promos basically stating their case. You know, we um, have Jungle Boy talking about the first time he faced MJF and how afterwards both of their like trajectories went in opposite directions. And then Sammy cuts his promo and kind of talks about how, you know, he had to really like 
scrap and claw to get to where he is now. And now part of me didn't like all the insider like terminology that he used, like talking about being Jericho's bump guy um, and like doing the job and stuff like that. Um, it felt very like late WCW Nitro to me um, mm. where they were trying to really like get over with like smart fans and everything. Um, because it's like, what, what the fuck does that mean to like an average audience member? And like, are you telling me this shit's fake? Cause then why do I That's care fair. about mm. you going after this imaginary title then? Um, and on top of it, like you're about to wrestle in the main event with Jericho. So yeah. it seems like you're kind of complaining about like being part <laughs> of his faction. So it's a little weird. Um, but at the end of the day, as long as he doesn't do too much, I'm fine with it, I think. Um, because it was a good promo, and I think it did get him over as a possible contender for that belt and as, like, you know, part of the future of AEW. Uh, and then Darby, Darby got on the mic and just knocked it out of the park. I thought this was by far the best promo we've heard from Darby Allen. Um, you know, I loved him ripping into, like, you know, the wrestlers who are disgruntled in the locker room, you know, going on Twitter and complaining and how, like, he really put over AEW. Because nowadays it seems like it's really, like, in vogue to get on the mic and, like, trash the company, which I fucking hate. Um, but, you know, he was the opposite. Like, he talked about, like, how much AEW meant to him and how, like, him as an artist and a wrestler has this, like, canvas to really do whatever he wants on now. I also thought that MGF was incredibly, like, selfless here and really allowed them to, like shine and have the moment um to get over with the audience and instead of like cutting them off and you know putting himself over um because that's like the big mistake a lot of heels make nowadays you know it's like one of my big issues i have with brit is she's always like trying to one up whoever her opponent is on the mic uh, where mjf he'll sit back and he'll sell you know, for them. I mean, he's definitely going to get his digs in and his one-liners, but he's going to put over whatever, you know, they're saying to him. Mm. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the segment, we even have him going through the fucking birthday cake because whenever there's a cake in wrestling, someone's getting it in the buy, face. like, cheap cake. You know, it's not something fancy <laughs> ever. I love that you are mourning the cake in the segment. <laughs> Hey, That's your takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> what a waste of cake. What are we doing here, people? Uh, but yeah, no, great segments. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to see like where all of this is headed. Uh, like, you know, do we get a four pillars match? You know, you know, does that happen at the pay-per-view? Or is that like a TV match? Because the pay-per-view is two and a half months away. Um, and that leads to maybe a singles match against like MJF and one of, you know, the pillars. With there being four of them, you know, we've seen them stretch out a storyline for three months with just two people. I can imagine there's enough that they can play around with to make this last until the pay-per-view. I feel like that's just a pay-per-view quality match. No. You know, having those four pillars and needs to be on that big of a show. I agree. Um, part of me wants to see them also get like one-on-one -on -one shots at the title, too. Could it be a situation where they do get one-on-one -on -one, like title shots against MJF and he keeps on like cheating to win and then it becomes a case of enough's enough. Now your title's on the line in a four-way match. I, I can see that. 
that that makes sense and that totally sounds like you know something that tony would like want to get involved in be able to be like hey you know when you cheat in every single match mm-hmm. well even like having all the wrestlers come out and just complain to him mm-hmm. you know hey you've cheated in each one of our singles matches we all deserve a title shot still yeah my only thing is is that's a lot of wrestling for mjf <laughs> and he doesn't typically have that many matches before uh-huh. like the next pay-per-view so we'll see he's gotta he's gotta put the iron man title on the line yeah. you know he's gotta <laughs> show did. that he is able to fight i did appreciate him calling himself iron man too uh-huh. um, he definitely <laughs> needs to use that at least once as like a ring entrance that'd be great yes but dear lord his face holy shit he looked awful um, I guess all those like hematobins like drained into his fucking eyes because um, he looked brutal. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Another highlight for me was the Dark Order and Hangman versus a full on heel Blackpool Combat Club because um, there's no doubt at this point that they're just fucking bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, Wheeler, like in the middle of this match, just fucking takes out Hangman with the bell. I mean, that's all you need to know. I mean, they've always uh-huh. kind of like played on the edge of the rules, but at this point, they're just not giving a fuck. I thought Stu really shined in this match. I thought it was great that, you know, he got the opportunity to, you know, wrestle on the show since he's from Canada. And it seems like he shined so much. He actually got himself a brand new deal. <laughs> um, you know, he's all elite again. I think technically he might be the first AEW wrestler to leave the company and come back at this point. I mean, that's not saying much. I mean, the company's obviously had only a short history, but I mean, still pretty cool. I'm glad that he's back in the fold, and I think the Dark Order could really use it. Exactly. Especially after that performance, you know, it. it how could Tony not do it, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, now, one of the reasons why I love this match so much was because it ended up being kind of like the through line story-wise for the entire show. Um, later on in the night, we actually see uh, Blackpool Combat Club and Dark Order still fighting in like the parking garage, <laughs> uh, this time with uh, Johnny and uh, Alex, um, who end up having to make the save earlier on in the night because the BCC continued to try to murder, you know, the Dark Order after the match. You know, I, I hate to admit it, Damon. Uh, I think I really like the concept of QTV at the moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think there is a lot of potential in doing stuff like that in the future. I, I'm not I'm not I'm never going to be hot on QT um, at all. But it's I think there's so, it's something at least different for this group that I feel like could interact with other wrestlers in a in a much more entertaining way than we've seen his group so far. I actually agree 100. percent I was going to bring okay. it up. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I thought the segment was great. Honestly, it was something different. It looked different. It felt different. Uh-huh. Um, I'm excited to see, um, RJ also in the background. Um, he's hilarious. So I'm hoping that he actually gets some screen time, but I mean, the whole like TMZ parody, I thought just made perfect sense. And there's so Mm -hmm. many different like creative ways they can take this. Um, like you don't want to do it every week, but if you do it just like a handful of times a month, I think it, it could be fantastic. And it's just such a different presentation that I think it did add to, kind of that fresh feeling we got from dynamite you know this week yes. obviously also including you know a couple of great storylines that they finally you know decided to pay off i'm just curious to see like how this all translates into the ring though like because I'm, I'm assuming that qt is going to be out there with hobbs you know yeah. as long as he doesn't like steal too much spotlight away from hobbs and he just you know 
allows Hobbs to be the monster that he is in the ring, um, I'm totally fine with this. Like if it becomes a roast fest on the side of the ring, I'll I'll be pretty annoyed. <laughs> I can't imagine that though. That doesn't feel very AEW to me yeah. whatsoever. So, um, because I mean, at the end of the day, they're still all about like the in ring work. So, so yeah, I think in small doses, this definitely you know will be fine. But like I said, I loved how we got the uh, Blackpool Combat Club Dark Order storyline colliding with our main event. Um, you know, and really like coming to a head, um, which, you know, I don't know, like how you felt about the, you know, trios triple threat match, but I thought it was really well done. I love seeing, uh, house of black get some main event spotlight. Um, hopefully now that they have the trios titles, we'll actually see them in the ring more, but I thought this was a super fun match. Um, the crowd was a little hot and cold on it. It felt like, and I don't, I'm not sure why. Like, Kenny and Jericho got huge pops, obviously, because they're from Winnipeg. But, like, there were spots here and there, and I don't know if it just was too much of a cluster for the audience to follow, where it just felt like they just, I mean, lost them for a little bit. Um, But I don't know. Like, everything I saw, I was enjoying. It just, I was just kind of surprised by, like, how quiet at times, you know, the crowd got. I don't know if you felt that way at all. I felt like it happened the most for the House of Black, and I, I thought that was disappointing because, you know, they deserve all the praise they can get in the ring. And I, maybe it's just a case of, you know, them being the heels and, you know, and there's no argument that the finish definitely felt flat, you know, when they, you know, were victorious. Mm-hmm. Um, but something, you know, just felt off, and I'm I'm not sure what it was because I did enjoy all the you know, action that was happening in the ring, it just felt like the crowd wasn't 100% behind it at times. But with the finish, uh, we saw Jack Swagger come out and attack uh, House of Black, which I wasn't expecting. So it seems like uh, they're setting up like a rematch for JAS and the House of Black. Uh, mm. I'm not sure when that's going to take place, but that's going to be a real interesting dynamic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You remember before I was worried about, like, the elite taking the piss out of, like, the House of Black's gimmick? Holy (laughs) shit. I mean, (laughs) um, I could see that tenfold happening with JAS, especially Mm -hmm. if you get, like, Daddy Magic talking about his nipples getting hard every time the lights go off or something like that. I could, I just, I don't know, man. Just seeing some horrible promos in our near future. Um, So... Um, hopefully it doesn't do any damage to the House of Black, um, yeah. because I think right now they're clicking on all cylinders. I just think they need to focus on the House of Black's, you know, more destructive side. Don't stick to the lights flickering off shit. Just have Brody King come out just constantly wrecking JAS and it'll be a fun time. Even that's all great and good, but you know Jericho is going to want to make sure that this uh-huh. isn't a one-sided feud. So, But it's also <laughs> interesting because you do have 2.0 setting up kind of a feud with um, the acclaimed right now. So I don't know where all this is leading. Um, You know, maybe the feud is going to really just be between like the core group of JAS, which is, you know, Garcia, Sammy and uh, Jericho. But then you also have to figure that Sammy is probably going to turn around and be involved in the four pillars feud. Yeah. So maybe this was their way of getting swagger now involved yeah. with that trio. They have so many fucking members. It, it, it works either way. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But then we also saw the fight between the BCC and Dark Order spill out onto the ramp. This actually ended up 
going into the ring. We had Hangman facing down all the members of the uh, Combat Club, minus uh, Brian Danielson, until unbeknownst to him, the Elite slid into the ring to get his back. And hell, they even gave us a little cliffhanger because Hangman had no idea that the Elite were behind him. (laughs) He was just starting to turn as we faded to black. This was the reunion I think a lot of fans were, you know, hoping for. Um, I didn't see it coming here. I mean, obviously, they've been dropping a lot of, like, breadcrumbs lately. Um, But it's been very stop and start just because of all Mm -hmm. the, you know, backstage drama that's been going on. And, you know, obviously, the Elite were suspended for at least over a month. So I'm glad that we've kind of got things back on track. And hopefully this means we're going to be seeing a reunion of sorts soon. But I mean, that's just how you close a show and make people want to come back the next week. Yes. Like that's that's a ratings booster. Yeah. Right and there. they used to do more of this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the first couple of years, like we would get more like cliffhanger like endings and then they just kind of got away from it for some reason. Like they need to do more storytelling like this. Um, but it was really satisfying as a huge elite fan and everything to mm-hmm. see this storyline kind of come into fruition and finally get the big moment and the money shot at the end to close the show. And now everyone's waiting on the edge of their seat, like, you know, waiting to see what happens next. And, you know, and as a booker, that's exactly how you want to leave your audience. Now, do you think Brian's going to stay out of this feud entirely? I hope not. Um, I think he'll come to the aid of the BCC. Uh, And maybe we even get a match, you know, between the two groups, Um, you know, an actual like four on four match. But then I could see them turning on Brian because it really all started with everything that happened with Regal, right? Yes. You know, and he's the one who ended up like kind of siding with Regal, you know, even though he turned on Moxley, um, you know, at the pay-per-view. So like he's the one who was defending Regal and, you know, I mean, that's how everything happened with MGF. And we really haven't seen them like interact, you know, since the whole MGF, you know, angle started, you know, that whole program. I mean, they've been really operating as like completely separate entities since then. I'm sure there's some ill will for, you know, Brian kind of taking sides with Regal and not standing up for Moxley. Because remember, Moxley wanted to kill Regal, and Brian stopped him. So perhaps they'll take that aggression out on Brian. Be a big sacrifice in the ring. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely in store for some interesting times. Um, but anyway, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, we don't have any more fuel left in the tank. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> we still have to record Patreon after this. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> dear Lord. Uh, but yeah, make sure to join us next week as we. Hopefully talk another episode of AEW. Well, that does it for this week. As a friendly reminder, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave a five-star review. It really helps new listeners to find the podcast and for us to continue to grow. Also, if you like the stories from this week's episode and want to keep up to date with the show, follow us on social media at Amazing Nerd Show or stop by TheAmazingNerdShow.com. And hey, to support the show further and get additional weekly content, you can subscribe to us now on Patreon. Just follow the link in the show notes. Also, if you want to rep some nerd show swag, you can head over to tpublic.com to find t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd show swag as long as you live in the United States. All right, make sure to join us next week as we talk all the latest news and rumors in nerd culture and whatever's going on in the world of wrestling. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. tragedy of 
of Darth Plagueis the Wise. No. I thought not. It's another story the Jedi would tell you. <laughs> 